We are continuing our series of sermons and we'll be doing so for at least probably another month and a half, maybe two months. I've already given another month of outlines uh, to Kay for the coming month, the titles and texts for the following month. And we're going to just stay in this series on hope in the midst of a shaken world because I want to use all three of John's letters. And uh, we're still in the second chapter of 1 John. Uh, and because I think those letters really give us a source uh, for certainty. Over and over again, we find the words, we know, or that you may know. Um, and uh, one of the things that I, I think that we can know for certain, at least I know it for certain, is that we're all sinners. The reality of our sinfulness, our propensity, our predisposition, our tendency to sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul, remember what he said? The things that I know I should be doing, I'm not doing. And the things that I'm not doing are the things I know I should be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Our tendency, our nature is to sin. And John's already told us about that in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, to be a liar. And his word is not in us. The fact is that none of us can deny we're sinners. However, John also wants us to know that there's a remedy. He reminds us more than once of the certainty of forgiveness. Verse 9 of this chapter, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 begins, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's our goal. We're not just to give up and say, well, you know, we're only human. No! When people are acting sinfully, Peter doesn't say, well, they're just acting human, according to their human nature. He says they're acting like ravaging wolves, beasts, animals. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. So here's the bottom line. What I'm coming to more and more uh, in what I'm reading even is the importance of obedience 
Dallas Willard in a little book called The Great Omission. It's a collection of, of articles that he wrote over the years for different publications. But here's what he says. The language of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 makes it clear that our aim, our job description as Christ's people is to bring disciples to the point of obedience to all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 28 verse 20. Of course, this assumes that we ourselves are in obedience having learned how to obey Christ. And as we looked at the beginning of this second chapter of 1 John, we identified tests to know if in fact we were truly followers of Jesus Christ. The moral test. The social test. The moral test talking about if we would obey. The social test talking about if we had brotherly love. And then I said the third would be the doctrinal test, which we will come to today. And we said that that first test, the moral test, is truly a test for evaluating our righteousness. It's developed by John in, in the third verse when he says, And by this we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Don't say you know Jesus Christ in a personal way if you're being disobedient, rebellious. Again, I can't stress enough the importance of obedience. In fact, there's a family of Greek words from which we get our word believe or believe. And you hear people all the time say, you don't have to do anything else to be saved except believe. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him doesn't say a thing about baptism. No, it doesn't. But I don't remember it saying anything about repentance either, does it? Or it doesn't say anything about living an obedient life, does it? Every single conversion in the book of Acts, every single one, bar none, includes baptism. And this family of words, believe and belief, is not something you have intellectually in your head. The pistuo, pistis, pestao family of words actually means, according to Louis Knight of the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, recognized as one of the authoritative texts, that family of words means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to trust. It includes behavior. And notice that as we close the previous section, verse 17 says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. It doesn't say whoever knows the will of God. It doesn't say whoever believes that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, abides forever. 
Jesse and I this week read Mark as a part of our morning reading. And it just hits me in the face every time I read Mark that the people who identify Jesus correctly the most often are the ones who are demon-possessed. They know who Jesus is. They know He's the Son of God. They know He's the Messiah. But that knowledge doesn't certainly bring them salvation, does it? Absolutely not. And now we move to a passage in which John stresses with urgency a very important warning. After his brief, two brief digressions that he did, he goes back to his principal thesis. That is, that there is a way to discriminate between the true and the false by means of these tests. And to the moral and the social tests, which he's already expounded in verses 3 to 11, now he adds a third test the doctrinal or the belief test. First, We'll see how John makes a clear distinction between the heretics and the genuine Christians, which we'll look at in terms of the urgency of the message. Then he defines the nature and the effects of that heresy, providing reassurance to the believers regarding their status. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at how John provides two safeguards against heresy. So let's look at what he says regarding the urgency of the message. But before we do, before we do, let me bring up a very important thing that will come up in these verses. I have people ask me all the time, Pastor, Minister, Chauncey, hey, dummy, Do you think we're living in the last days? And I say, absolutely. Oh, I do too. What do you think about this going on here and that going on there? Oh, I say, wait a minute, time out. Maybe we have a different understanding of the last days. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, Acts chapter 2. Verse 14 and following. Pentecost. Peter has all these disciples that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the people are starting to accuse them of being a bunch of drunks. And what's Peter say? This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my Spirit. When did Joel say it was going to happen? In the last days. What did Peter say was going on in front of them? The fulfillment of that prediction. So, it was the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8. Paul writing to Timothy says, But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. And then he goes on to give an extensive list of horrible behaviors. And guess what he says? And all of this is going on right now. Avoid such people. What's the clear message? We're in the last days. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He's spoken to us by the Son. I could go on and on. The clear message of the New Testament is that the last days is a period of time that began with the coming of Christ and especially with His ascension to the throne and will continue until He returns. That period of time is the last days. We're living in the last days. And we will be until He comes again. So let's look at His test. His, the text. Just first of all, just as... Oops. Did I go the wrong way? Verses 18 and 19 to begin. Children, it's the last hour. Not just the last days, but the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many I Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all none of, not of us. Notice that not once, but twice, John tells his beloved little children that this is the last hour. Since the new age had dawned with the coming of Christ, the Christians that knew themselves to be living in the last days, the age to come had already come. The world and the darkness were already passing away. Look back at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. Verse 17. I already read it once. And the world is passing away with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John was convinced that not only was it the last days, but that within that end period, it was the last hour. It had struck. And notice what John says about the Antichrist. The evidence for John that it was the last days, in fact, the last hour, was that many antichrists have come. And the many antichrists who have already come are now identified as human teachers. By the way, I want you to know today, if you're not already aware of this fact, not opinion, that the word antichrist only appears in the Bible in John's letters. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's not found in the book of Revelation. I know. There are a lot of people who have written a lot of books and made a lot of money by talking about how Revelation's talking about when the Antichrist comes and it's not in Revelation. It's only right here in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Let me help you with something else. 
The prefix in the Greek, anti, it not only means in opposition, but it can also mean false. False Christ. So who are the Antichrists? They're no doubt the same as the false prophets that we're going to come to in chapter 4, verse 1. In fact, if you want, look at me with our Lord's combination. Go to Mark chapter 13, verse 22. If you go there, you're going to find that Jesus said, for false Christ, now the Greek word there is an Antichrist, Christo or whatever word. It is a a different word. But it's a synonym. False Christ, Antichrist, those who oppose Christ. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. He's not just writing that to us 2,000 years later. He's writing it to them in that day to help them then. These are people who have left the church to which John is writing, perhaps because they had failed to win over the people there. My heart is broken for a church in Illinois. Christian church, independent Christian church movement, that not that long ago was pushing 300. And I'm talking within a decade. Pushing 300. And this morning they'll be lucky if they have 50. I called one of the previous ministers when I was alerted to the problem and watched and listened to something that was being taught. And he said, well, I didn't know that man was back. He had tried to get into the church when I was the minister there, but the elders stood their ground and said, no, we weren't going in that direction, and he had left. But with a change, he had returned, and they had one of those situations where at a board meeting, the elders were outvoted by the deacons. They had more deacons than elders, and the deacons outvoted the elders in terms of what should be done. And so every single elder resigned. And all of the staff except one person resigned. And the church has no leadership other than this guy who had come back with what I believe very strongly after listening, reading, researching to be nothing other than a 21st century Gnostic teaching. Special knowledge. Get all these numbers and put all this together and you come up with this and, and that Jesus isn't really his real name we need to be using a different name and if you listen to me I can help you to get this special knowledge and the church is dying John not only relates the fact of their departure from the fellowship but he discerns a purpose in it 
He says, those heretics went out on their own volition because that was what was necessary to make manifest, to reveal who they really were. You see, here's my point, and I, and I want to stress this. If you have a disagreement with something that's being taught here, the place to go is not out the door and leave. The place to go is to come in, get a group together, study it together, and determine as a group which direction we need to go. I'm open to that. My mentor, Bob Lowry, said the very first principle of interpreting the Scripture is humility. You're human. You might not have all the right answers. But secondly, it's community. We should never be interpreting God's Word as an individual in isolation because we can convince ourselves of all kinds of stupid things. Didn't Paul write that what is counterfeit cannot remain forever hidden? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Jesus Himself said in Luke 12, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Which brings us to our second point. Notice how he begins in verse 20. You all have knowledge. John wants to give them reassurance of their status. And we talked about this already. That after uh, hitting them hard, uh, he uh, wanted to make sure that they understood that they were still loved. And he wanted to give them reassurance and guidance. That's what we looked at last week. And now he does the same thing again. After speaking of those who had fallen out of their fellowship, he does some reassuring. Verses 20 to 23. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. See what he says? You know the truth. You have knowledge. John's contrasting his reader's loyalty to the truth with the heretical teaching of those who have departed from the church. And for John, it's due to the fact that they possess an anointing. The words charisma from the Holy One. It seems as though John's making a deliberate play on words here, by the way. Because protection against the Antichrist is the charism that they have received and who is Jesus as the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. So, you've been given an anointing 
to fight the Antichrist. And a part of that anointing is is that Jesus has come, the the anointed one has come to, to help you. You see, when the Messiah came in fulfillment of Isaiah 61, He was anointed at His baptism. Remember those who were at Bible study? He comes up out of the water and what happens? The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. It didn't say some bird flew up and landed on Him just after He got baptized. The Holy Spirit descended upon Him like a dove. And so it's likely that the anointing which we receive from God is in fact that very same Holy Spirit. I believe it is. And in contrast to the false teachers who were antichrist, the true Christian has received that same anointing with Christ. It's through the illumination. The light. God is light. Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we know the truth. And John's going to elaborate on that in verse 27. And so here in verse 21, he emphasizes his assurance concerning their genuine discipleship by means of their beliefs, their orthodoxy. His purpose in writing, he says, is not to inform them of new truth, but to confirm them in the truth that they already know. Not only do they know the truth, they know the character of the truth. That it's wholly true and self-consistent. And that no lie comes from that truth. In fact, on the contrary, lies emanate from the devil. And that's the third test of true discipleship. The false teaching of those who had left the church is now revealed. It's a denial that Jesus is the Christ. And he doesn't simply mean a denial that Jesus was the Messiah of the Old Testament expectation. In the second part of the verse, he refers to Jesus as the Son. You see, the error he was combating is now more precisely defined as Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. Now, let me help you. Because what was going on at that time was that there were the beginning stages. I know it didn't come until a few years, a decade later in terms of its full form. But the beginnings were already there for a false teaching known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believed that everything good was spiritual and everything material was bad. Therefore, Jesus couldn't have really been an earthly physical man and been the Son of God because He couldn't have really been flesh. And so they believed that Jesus just appeared to be a person. It's called docetic Gnosticism, the appearance. And that's why John in his gospel, remember how he begins? That's that which we have seen, we've touched, we've felt it, we've handled it. This is real. Don't tell me it's just an appearance. And so, those antichrists, many of them believe that Jesus was just a man and he became the Christ. When the Spirit landed on him, he became divine then. But then, when he died on the cross, that 
the spirit left him. And he went back to being the non-material, non-physical Jesus. Defective beliefs. You see, that's part of the reason why I began with that little thing that I did this morning. This is not the church. But I'm guilty of it. I've said many times to my wife when I was getting my coat on, where are you going? I'm going to the church. And I'll get here and there's nobody here. The building's here, but the church is not here. Because the people are the church. And then the problem is that you can get all kinds of false teaching built around bad theology. For instance, yes, you can worship God by yourself out in the woods. But you can't be the church out there. Christian is never used in the singular in the New Testament. It's the Christians. It's as we come together in community, in fellowship. I love the Eastern Orthodox image of the Trinity. It's a picture of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit holding hands in a circle and and dancing together. Fellowship. Community. You see, it's really pretty clear. You can't be a Unitarian. You can't be a member of a sect that denies the deity of Jesus. You really can't be a part of the Jesus seminar and be a Christian because everybody that was a part of that seminar denied the virgin birth and the resurrection. Many strange cults have a popular appeal today, but they can easily be judged and quickly repudiated by this test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh? Otherwise, you're denying both the Father and the Son, John said. And so we arrive at the true test of right, true righteousness. Having distinguished between the false teachers and the true teachers, believers, having exposed the nature and the consequences of the heresy, John now draws our attention to two safeguards that will protect us if we're really going to be guarded against the area. Two things remain, he says, the message that you heard from the beginning and the anointing that you received. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is a promise that He made to us. Eternal life. By the way, when does eternal life begin in the Bible? When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not when you die a physical death. 
And that, that brings us to another false teaching that leads many of people aside. Salvation is not just about going to heaven when you die. Salvation is being delivered, delivered from all the things that keep you under in bondage on this planet so that you can live the abundant life before you physically die. This is a promise He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now little children abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. What they had heard from the beginning. What had they heard from the beginning? It was the Gospel. It was the message John the Baptist repeated proclaimed repent for the kingdom is at hand the first words of Jesus in his ministry repent for the kingdom is at hand it was the apostles teaching it was that original message and it had not changed and would not change and they needed to make sure that it remained in them but it wouldn't do so automatically They needed to take steps to ensure that it abided in them. Folks, if you want to sit down sometime, I would be more than happy to do it. But there are many, many verses in the New Testament that repudiate the false teaching that once you're saved, you're always saved. I know Jesus says nothing can pluck them out of my hand. But there is nothing that says that you can't rebel against. Paul says, Hymenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked their faith. They were a part of us. They shipwrecked their faith. You can't shipwreck something if you don't have a ship to wreck. They had faith. They shipwrecked their faith. We've got to make sure that we're doing everything we can do to stay true. To say, stay conservative in our theology. I'm not talking about right wing, left wing politically. I'm talking about staying with the original message of the Word of God and the Apostles. Holding on. Conserving that teaching. Because The Bible says that there will be times when people just have itching ears uh, running around to new teachers listening to anybody that they can find to find an assurance of what they believe to be true. You see, the continuous obsession for the latest ideas, that's not the Christian way. That's the way of those men at Athens in Acts chapter 17. Christian beliefs are anchored not only to certain historical events culminating in the saving career of Jesus, 
but to the apostolic authoritative witness which we have in the Word of God. And that's why, that's why it'll keep them true to Him if they remain true to it. John doesn't underestimate the strength or the subtlety of the deceivers. They've not succeeded, but they're in the process of making the attempt. And John wants his little children to make sure that they're not deceived. The devil himself is the primary deceiver, for it's his very nature to be a liar and the father of lies. John's readers had a second Safeguard, and that was namely the anointing, the charisma that they received from Him which remains in you and that is the Holy Spirit that you and I receive when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we bury the old self so that we can open up a nice clean home, a new place for the Spirit to dwell. And the Spirit comes in and takes residence. And John wants to make sure that we understand that Jeremiah's prophecy is in fact real. Jeremiah said you don't need anyone to teach you in the new age in those days. You see, and then verse 28 and 29 that we already read, they really provide a transition. And for us, this morning an excellent place to have a conclusion. We began with the importance of obedience. And we conclude with the importance of practicing righteousness. How many of you played an instrument in the band at school? Anybody? One over here. There's another couple. There's one way back there. Then they had a little special group sometimes called the pep band. Or they might have a special group called the concert orchestra or band. Now, almost anybody could be in the band and they wouldn't kick you out as long as, in bigger schools, as long as you could march in step so that you could go to the state fair if you were that lucky. With a nice big number of people in the band. But to be a part of those special groups, what you have to do? You had to practice. You had to try out. You had to practice. You had to make sure that you were continuing to practice. And so it is with our lives as Christians. He says, make sure that you are practicing righteousness. Now, if you want to know how to do that, come to Midweek Bible Study on Wednesday nights or listen in because we're about to go into that in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus when He says, don't let the way you practice your righteousness look like the way that the Pharisees practice their righteousness. But He doesn't say don't do it. He doesn't say if you fast, if you pray, if you give. He says when you fast, when you pray, when you give. We need to be practicing righteousness. And what he's done by this to prepare you for next Sunday 
is he started us back into another round of the three tests. Beginning with the importance of obedience once again. Let's pray.